This podcast contains depictions of violence and abuse perpetrated against children, including sexual abuse and rape, as well as suicide, institutional racism, intergenerational trauma, and a bit of swearing. But there's also friendship, love, inappropriate puns, and general skullduggery. The survivors of Lake Alice want their stories to be heard. But do take care when and where you listen. Stuff Podcasts. Previously on the lake. So they say, right, we'll take this lad. Uh, You know, we'll take Rungi, we'll take all the other ones and we'll make a better life for them. Were you scared? Oh, well, let's get something straight. It was fucking terrifying. Uh, No, I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared of nothing. Tyron would keep them busy. I'd jump the fence, do the berg, back into the classroom, play the part of Mr Innocent. I'm being given liquids and pills to swallow. I didn't know what they actually were. The good thing about that was that we did everything together. Okay, I've just fucking landed in the lake then. From Popsock Media and Stuff, this is The Lake, a podcast about the children of Lake Alice. I'm Aaron Smale. Welcome to episode two, The National Grid. In New Zealand, there are just over five sheep for every person. But the sheep ratios have actually declined in the last few years. It actually used to be 22 sheep per person back in 1982. But farming is still a big deal in this country, which means on a road trip, the view out the window is often the same, with just slight variations. Rolling green farmland. This stretch of road is on State Highway 3, It's mostly a two-lane road travelling up the west coast of the country's North Island. We're headed northwest towards Whanganui. We've gone straight through the town of Bulls, as most people do, but the town has tried to encourage people to stop by putting bull statues around the town and bull puns in every shop window. The local cafe is delectable. If you need the police, you ask for a constable. You get it. About 10 kilometres on from Bulls, you notice a water tower over to your left. This is our turn. Lake Ellis Hospital is an open-style psychiatric hospital for about 300 patients. Most of the patients in Lake Ellis live in open villas, The doors are never locked. If a patient wants to escape, all he has to do is walk away. Lake Ellis Psychiatric Hospital opened in 1950 and housed patients with a variety of mental illnesses. It was modern for the time. Patients were housed in two-storey villas, as opposed to the old-school Gothic institutions. In 1965, Lake Alice opened the doors of its maximum security unit. This unit was built to house the country's most deranged individuals, killers, rapists and the like, who'd been found not guilty by reason of insanity. In 1972, which is when we arrived there, the total population at Lake Alice is about 300, all adults. Apart from one small boy. All right, are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. Okay, it was one sunny day... 
actually it was cloudy. This is Tyrone Marks. And, um, He's 60 now, but he was that kid. When he got to Lake Ellis, he was 11, about to turn 12. He was also a ward of the state, meaning officially the New Zealand government was his parent. Tyrone had already spent a few years being passed between various state institutions, but this place seemed different. There's no other children. It's just me. Where were the other kids? I was just told to come over here, put these on, which were pyjamas that were made for, you know, someone that was six foot ten, and go and sit in that lounge. When he arrived, Tyrone bypassed the admin building and went straight to Villa 5, near the back entrance. And then they showed me where I would be sleeping, which was in a big open ward. There was about 15 beds, maybe more. And I'm the youngest in there by, I don't know, 50 years, some 60 years. They they were all old. I didn't even still at that stage know that this was a mental institution until I started seeing people, older people. People were biting their arms and, you know, they were yelling and, yeah, I was starting to get quite concerned and wondering where the fuck I've landed this time. Let's leave Lake Alice for now and get back on the road. We're going to continue north on State Highway 3 for another half an hour, crossing over the Whanganui River and continuing on through Whanganui Town Centre, up St John's Hill. Holdsworth School is right around here, the place Tyrone escaped from when he got hit by that car, before he was moved on to Lake Alice. But we're going to take a ride before that, just here, to Virginia Lake. Beside the rippling water, some kids are playing a game. The Holdsworth kids, on a field trip, and among them is Rangi, Tyrone's little mate and fellow escape artist. The game they're playing involves a native grass, called toy toy, which kids call cutty grass, for the way its leaves can slice up your hand. But if you're careful, you can avoid these leaves and break off one of the tall, feathered toy toy flowers. Me and my friend, Tahu Wilson, Tahu Wainga, were showing toy toys each other. Rangi and his mate Tahu Wainga, plus some other kids, are throwing toy toy at each other. But not just the flowers. The kids have engineered the long stems for flight adding flax wings so they'd go further, and embedding the tips with three-inch steel nails. As you do. That went a long way. A very long way. That was kids playing ball. You know, six on one side, six on the other. The minute you drew blood, you were dead. Simple as that. Once you got blood coming out of you, you had to lie on the ground, and that was over. The game was over. So you were all eyes for the incoming, and you were all, you know, strength. Anyway, this toy toy goes into his legs. He goes to the housemaster, Rangi, fucking Wycliffe, <laughs> stabbed me with this toy toy with this. And they go, right, Rangi, that's it. You're off to the lake. Rangi was 10 and he was stoked. After years in boys' homes, he knew that when you did bad things, like hurting another kid in a war game, you got punished. But this time, 
it sounded like he was in for a treat. So now they're not going to let me stay at the lake here with these boys. They're going to take me to another lake where I'm going to have a lake on my own with a canoe. <laughs> and Logan's going to be happy as a larrikin. That's how, you know, that's how naive I was about the lake. And I'm like, fuck it, I'm the car, let's go to this lake. I want to see the canoe. And they're like, you know, Rangi, it's all good. We get to Lake, lake Alice, and I'm still looking at all these boulders we're driving around. I said, gee, where's the lake? And they're like, oh, it's just down the back. We're just going down this way. And, uh, but first of all, only we're going to stop at this place and have lunch. Anyway, I'm jumping into the car. What's for lunch? I get inside and there's sandwich and a, and a little cup of tea. He said, well, you wait here, Rangi, and we'll be um, back to see you later. Oh, yeah, OK. So. But no one came to get him. In the past five years... Lake Alice has become known more for the presence of a maximum security block housing patients who, in the words of the Minister of Health, Mr Mackay, are a definite menace to the safety of the community. The medical superintendent of Lake Alice, Dr S.L. Pugmire, said the only way a patient can get out is by proving to the review board that he is not perverse. Dr Pugmire sees the impossibility of escape as a great advantage in his work. He calls it compulsory rehabilitation. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You'll also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Like a lot of other things, New Zealand's mental health system was imported from Victorian England. And actually, some of the largest buildings built in colonial New Zealand were mental asylums. Institutions like Seacliff in Dunedin were giant stone edifices designed to contain people that were deemed outside the norms of society or deviant. In this way, mental asylums and prisons overlapped in both design and practice. After World War II, these older asylums fell out of fashion, and newer institutions like Cherry Farm and Lake Alice were built. They were designed to look more like normal homes, with fewer patients housed in discreet villas. Lake Alice looks pleasant enough from the main road that runs past its boundaries, Brightly painted villas that house the patients stand in lawns that are kept neat and tidy. A patient's standard of living at Lake Alice could be considered better than that of any average family man. The patient has television, radio, newspapers, magazines and books. He can work on paintings or carvings and he can set school certificate or university entrance exams. He's well fed and is waited on at his meals. He can play basketball and swim in the summer. Despite the apparent advances in psychiatric care in some of the newer institutions, those older Victorian-style asylums did continue to operate. Many were run down and miserable places to live. The practices were out of date and not up to modern standards of psychiatric care. This is Emeritus Professor John Wary. Anyway, what can I do for you? He's 91 and had a long and illustrious career as a psychiatrist. 
He literally wrote the book on psychoactive drugs for children and adolescents. He helped write the criteria for diagnosing ADHD and set up the School of Psychiatry, where he taught a couple of generations of students at Auckland University. In 1970, after studying and working overseas, Weary came home to New Zealand. And I swear to God, I had never seen such poverty in hospital facilities. And I saw what was then Carrington, I think. And I couldn't believe what I saw. I went into the women's ward and the, the beds were so close together that the women could hardly get into bed, you know, without having to climb over the other woman. And as Weary said, the practices were out of date too. Like frontal lobotomies, which had fallen out of favour decades earlier in other parts of the world. Some countries had even outlawed them. But John Weary says they were still going on in New Zealand in the 1970s, and that he put a stop to them at Auckland Hospital. Another thing that was happening at this time was a widespread paranoia about young people going off the rails, having sex and getting violent. This had been a concern for a couple of decades. In 1954, something called the Mazengarb Report was distributed to every single home in New Zealand, warning of the grave threat to society from moral delinquency in children and adolescents. It said, The new pattern of juvenile immorality is uncertain in origin, insidious in growth, and has developed over a wide field. In 1958, there were a series of programmes on the YA radio station, the old state broadcaster, discussing these young delinquents. Yes, one thing that I'm interested in is to see if you can tell in advance certain things, if you can pick certain symptoms in advance to know where you're likely to find delinquency. Oh, yes. So when uh, we get them at the rather advanced stage of Boston, the <coughs> diagnosis is fairly clear. The vast uh, majority of them at least have these common factors. Uh, they come from broken or unsatisfactory homes, or they are inadequate uh, to meet the general life, either physically or intellectually or otherwise. Psychology and psychiatry had been around in some shape or form for a long time. But the interest in children was more recent. In New Zealand, the Department of Education responded to the paranoia about adolescent delinquency by employing psychologists. Around the same time, pharmaceutical companies were developing drugs to control the symptoms of mental illness, so that instead of being contained by walls, patients were controlled by chemical medications. All of this resulted in a relatively new field with little oversight and inconsistent practices. Well, the general principle is in, in paediatrics is that you don't put your kids in with adults. You don't mix them up. You have to have a separate unit with specially trained staff and so on. Eventually, there would be a separate unit for kids and adolescents at Lake Alice. But when 11-year-old Tyrone got there, he didn't see any other children at all. He was thrown into a villa with adults, and it didn't take long for things to get pretty ugly. My first night there, I was sexually fucking abused straight away. The guy that tried it, I whacked him with a chair right across his fucking head. He just didn't feel anything. <laughs> it was like nothing. So, yeah, he, he just 
just abused me and a few others tried and I thought I'm absolutely fucked. Remember, Tyrone's only just got out of hospital after being hit by a car. He's been in a full body cast for four months. His first experience at Lake Ellis is an adult patient sexually assaulting him. He tries to defend himself. He goes to staff members and tries to tell them what's happened. But their response is to give him drugs to sedate him. I got held down and injected with prealide. Was that the next morning that you got? No, I got it that night and then the next day because I kicked up fucking fuss. And so they tried to sedate me again. It's kind of like morphine, but in a, when they inject it into you, it's a painful, it's a pain-inducing drug, but the effect is, is to quieten you down. Here's John Weary explaining peraldehyde. Peraldehyde was basically a widely used sedative before the arrival of the newer drugs the way Tyrone describes it, peraldehyde sounds nasty. It had to be given in a glass syringe because it dissolved plastic ones. It made the person who got the injection smell bad for days and it left a terrible taste in their mouth. Plus the injection really hurt and could lead on to all sorts of other complications. Peraldehyde is still used today, but much less often and it had already fallen out of favour when Tyrone arrived at Lake Alice. It's an indicator that the practices of the hospital are backward. You know, they haven't caught up with Mm. big developments. Lake Alice is doing vital work and is an experiment in the rehabilitation of dangerous criminals. According to the staff of Lake Alice, it is an experiment that is working. Tyrone has landed in an institution unlike any he has been in before. After I come right again, I get to know that I'm going to be staying in this place. No one's explained to me why I'm here. About a week later, still in his adult pyjamas, Tyrone comes to in a room with rows of beds. The lights are dim. He feels groggy, but he can see 30 or 40 adults. They look like they're asleep. He watches as a doctor and a couple of nurses wheel a trolley around the room. On the trolley, there's a silver box. So I could see that they were going from bed to bed. They had this machine, that person, and that was finished. They're going to the next person. You know, whatever they were doing, I didn't know what they were doing. But obviously, they, they were going through the water. And everyone on those beds were being electrocuted. And when it comes to my turn, I'm actually kind of have fallen asleep. And now I only wake up because they're shoving something down my mouth, which I tried to pull out because I couldn't breathe. I told them I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And then, obviously, they used something. You know, the, they, they were knocking me out, you know, within, with a, an, you know, an effortist or something. I woke up with a thump and a fucking headache and still lying in that bed and wonder if someone just smashed me with a baseball bat or something. And yeah, I've been electrocuted. Were you aware that it was happening when you were electrocuted? No, no, not that time, no. 
He wasn't aware because he wasn't awake. But I've seen his Lake Alice files. In that first week, Tyrone was given sedative and anaesthetic drugs over a period of five days, as well as electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, over three successive days. He also put on weight really quickly, and the wounds from his bike accident were still weeping. The doctor that Tyrone watched moving from bed to bed was a psychiatrist. His name was Dr. Selwyn Leakes. Dr. Leakes was a psychiatrist based at the Manawaroa Centre for Psychological Medicine in Palmerston North Hospital, which is about half an hour southeast of Lake Alice. Selwyn Leakes went to a boys' school called Auckland Grammar and studied medicine at Otago University. He worked a few different jobs after that, and then left to England, where he specialised in child psychiatry. Dr. Lex may not have known it, but he was following in the footsteps of his ancestors. Two of them had owned and run mental asylums in the 18th and 19th centuries. After coming back to New Zealand in 1971, Lex landed at Manawaroa, where he helped set up the child health clinic. But he also did a lot of consulting, visiting welfare homes throughout the Lower North Island. He'd give advice to senior staff and prescribe medication for young children. And he worked part-time at Lake Alice. Professor John Weary was at Otago Medical School at the same time as Leakes, but never met him. He thinks that when Leakes came back to New Zealand, he was professionally isolated. Because of this, we haven't found many people who knew him well. A lot of them have passed away, and others aren't willing to talk. But one person who did know Lex was a psychiatric nurse called Brian Stab. Brian worked at Lake Alice when he was in his 20s. He'd only just arrived from England when he took on the job, and he started just four days after arriving in New Zealand. How would you describe Dr Lex? He was um, a tall, skinny, gently spoken, very gently spoken man who would sit and talk to kids for half an hour, an hour at a time. Um, yeah, there was a lot of things about him that were... He was quite charming, erudite. He was a really, he had a, a really good sense of humour. Really? Yeah. In both the open and security hospitals, the staff obviously love their patients and are proud of them, considering the security block to be the perfect prison. By the time Murangi turned up at Lake Ellis, after his toy-toy fight with Tahiwainga, his mate Tyron wasn't there anymore. He'd been moved back to Holdsworth. Rangi was finishing his cup of tea when a few nurses came in and told him it was time to meet Dr Leakes. Remember, by this stage, Rangi had been sexually abused a number of times, so he had learned to profile every man he met. He has a clear memory of the first time he met Dr Leakes. Hello, I'm Dr Leakes. Big smile, soft handshake. I'm like, oh, you smell all right. You seem all right. Yeah, you're a good man. I liked him. I did. Uh, because of his gentle manner, because of his nature, um, the way how he looked at me, you know, uh, and he spoke to me about, well, Rangi, we, you have some problems with 
tell you why. He's dead. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. We were, you know, we were war fighting and mm-hmm. um, throwing toy toys. And he goes, well, that's not nice. And but don't worry, everything will be all right. And we'll follow me upstairs. Lex took him upstairs, where his nurses helped Rangi into a hospital gown and got him to lie down. It's not till I actually lie down and I get the <laughs> on the legs and then it's got the arms and then him leaning over, go, well, put this in your mouth. I'm like, what's good? You know, what's good? He goes, no, it's, it's all right, Rangi. It's fine, you know. Bite on this. I'm going to the electrodes. A rubber mouth guard is put between his teeth. Staff hold Rangi down. And Dr. Lex puts electrodes on his temples. I'm a child. I still don't know what the fuck is going on. What I do know is that it's extremely hot, painful. My jaws are aching from... Um, I think that by chewing harder on the on the rubber, that's going to make the pain go away, but that's not true. So I'm aching here. Um, my whole body is convulsing into like spasms off the bed, like possessed, bent. Everything's spasming, the whole body. ECT. It's short for electroconvulsive therapy. It's a treatment where electricity is used to start a seizure in a patient in the hopes of relieving the symptoms of mental illness. The ancient Greeks used electric eels to try and cure people's maladies, but modern ECT was invented in Italy in the late 1930s. At that time, psychiatrists knew that people with epilepsy didn't seem to suffer from schizophrenia. They reasoned that if they could induce a seizure in a schizophrenic, they'd be cured. For a while, they induced those seizures with chemicals. But then an Italian psychiatrist named Ugo Soletti stumbled upon a new method when he was visiting his butcher. Soletti was out back in the abattoir, and he noticed how the pigs would convulse when they were stunned with electricity just before they were slaughtered. This is how modern ECT was born. Here's Dr. Selwyn Lex explaining the reasons he would give ECT to a patient in an interview he gave in 1977 to TVNZ. I guess uh, one can think of the child who, um, who was rather sadly treated by her father in terms of uh, incestuous attack and rape who over the years developed a psychosis in which she could hear voices telling her to uh, do various things and who, uh, who would not respond to the ordinary medication. ECT is one of the most controversial treatments in modern psychiatry. And movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest haven't exactly helped its reputation. But the practice has developed and changed over the years and is generally seen by psychiatrists as a good option when all other methods have failed. When the patient has a severe depression, it has to be severe. Professor Weary again. That has not responded to antidepressant medication and you, you think they're going to commit suicide. 
But there's one other indication, which is uh, a manic state that has not responded to medication. Um, I had one patient who, uh, in a manic state, jumped out the window at Middlemore Hospital and fell on his heels, fractured both his heels, and I could not get his uh, condition under control, so I gave him ECT and it worked like a charm. In 1972, Selwyn Lex officially opened the Child and Adolescent Unit at Lake Ellis. From then on, Tyrone and Rangi would be joined by other children. You might have noticed that so far we've only met boys from Lake Ellis, but girls were there too. I think it's time for you to meet another friend of mine. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? This is Leonie McEnroe. When I call her this time, she's just been out with a friend. Anyhow, um, she said to me, are you still the senior counsellor, Aaron? (laughs) (laughs) We've spent so many hours on the phone, talking mostly about Lake Alice, that one of her friends thinks I'm her counsellor. Leonie doesn't need my advice. She's been on a long, hard journey before I came along. OK, that's your meeting. Um, and do let me know if you hear of anything new. I will, yeah. Talk soon. Bye. As well as being a girl, Leonie's story is different from what you usually hear because her path to Lake Alice didn't take her through the welfare homes. Leonie was born to a single mother and was adopted out to a couple, the McEnroes, during the era of closed adoptions. The few things she remembers or knows about them is that they were good parents and she believes she was particularly close to her father, a journalist. But then tragically, they both died before she was four and Leonie and her adopted brother were placed in the Methodist Mission Orphanage in Mount Roskill in Auckland. I remember weekends were when people came to, I'm not sure of a better expression, to view the children to look for potential children to adopt. My mother, McEnroe, had owned a haberdashery store and apparently I arrived with the most beautiful sets of clothes and I recall sitting on my bed, on the edge of my bed, making my skirt very straight and trying to look. And my little childlike mind is pretty and as acceptable as possible to be chosen. Leonie was chosen by a Christian family from Whanganui. They seemed nice. I think that initially there was a real desire to give me a good home, that they were happy to have me. Somewhere that changed. I think that I was too little to have done anything deliberately, defiantly, terribly wrong. I had a desperate need to belong and be in a family. So I'm not sure when the shine wore off, but it did. And that there were years of torture and abuse. The person that Leone describes as her torturer was her foster mother. We're going to call her Mother T. 
I recall very clearly asking, as a very small person, are you my new mummy and daddy? And I used to ask that a lot because as I got older, I recall her scolding me for that. It was something that annoyed her, but many things annoyed her. My cough annoyed her so much that I would be made to sleep out in the washhouse with the dog. It was connected to the house. It wasn't like an out outhouse um, on the floor, on the lino floor in the washhouse. I desperately, desperately tried to belong and to get it right, and that getting it right and pleasing her became such a mystery to me. It was so often just the very sight of me seemed to annoy her and enrage her. I did a lot of housework from a very young age. I can remember being too small, too short, to hang the clothes on the washing line, and so they built a box. I would prepare the evening meals, but I wasn't allowed to sit with the family. She'd make me sit and have my dinner on my own and shut the doors in the kitchen while they'd watch TV and have dinner. When Leonie's adoptive parents died, they'd left money in an estate for her care, which the Methodist Mission administered. Leonie thinks this is the reason her foster parents didn't send her away. They accumulated a lot of money by having me. So she kept me. If I had no estate attached to me, I think she would have just given me back. And so the abuse escalated. When I'd been sent to bed after school, she'd come into my room in the evening and she would lift the blankets off the end of my bed and stab my feet with her darning needles. I was petrified of her. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how she wanted me to react. So literally, I would just scream on the inside and I made no noise. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, our ancestors developed survival instincts to help them react to threats which would have been a deadly animal or a natural disaster. This is called the fight, flight or freeze response. We might not need to deal with tigers in the wild so much these days, but our bodies still react in the same ways to other threats. Little Rangi responded to repeated physical and sexual abuse with flight. He learned to run. Tyrone was a runner too, but he was also a scrapper. He fought back. Leonie, she froze. She took my afraid to respond as a sign of I don't respond to pain. Mother T became obsessed with figuring out what was wrong with Leonie. So she took her to all sorts of experts from GPs to hypnotists, to what Leonie would later describe as whack therapists. Eventually, 
This led Mother T and 12-year-old Leone to Manawaroa and Dr Leakes. I can't put into words the tone and the way in which he'd speak to you when there was no one else around. It was condescending and I didn't feel safe in his presence, um, emotionally safe, and I was petrified of saying something against her. They were on the same team against me. I would say as little as possible. I would wish that I was anywhere else on this earth. That was their time. That was their catch-up, their thing. Like she was collecting this evidence, abusing me and taking that to Dr. Leakes. And he said, perhaps it's time that we give a stay in Lake Hillis a go. Leone had actually heard of Lake Ellis from Mother T. On our way, driving from Wanganui to Palmerston North, you'd go past the sign for Lake Ellis, and for some years prior, she'd say, that's where you belong. One day you were going there. That's where you belong. That's where the nutters go. I mean, everybody knew in that area what Lake Ellis was and the stigma it held and the fear and mystery that surrounded it, and she had got it. She was wrapped. She was, that was, yes. I remember crying, crying my heart out, leading up to going. She drove me there, and was delighted there was real joy for her. I didn't think to run away. I didn't think to anything. I was completely powerless. Out of the public eye, conditions at the hospital are not as bright and cheerful. The periodic escapes by patients, some of them potentially dangerous, have alarmed residents in the scattered farms around the hospital. Leonie clearly remembers the day she first went to Lake Ellis. It was 1975. The child and adolescent unit had been running for three years. Leonie was 14 years old. By this point, there were dozens of boys in one villa and up to 10 girls in another. We went to the admission office, Dr Pugmire's office. Dr Stanley Pugmire was the superintendent of Lake Ellis. He's the guy in charge of the whole facility. She presented Dr Pugmire with, she doesn't respond to pain, she lies and she steals. I did steal. I stole 20 cents and 10 cents and 5 cents frequently to um, try and buy friends with lollies. She was correct. I did steal at school. I stole lunches. I was starving. By that time... Dr. Leakes had given her the potential diagnosis of me being pre-schizophrenic. In hindsight, having had a chance to look at documents, what do you know about your legal status? Were you a voluntary, informal? What was the sort of... 
I was a voluntary and formal patient. Uh, I could have walked out at any given point on any day in that moment, but I didn't know that. But where would she have gone? I will never in my lifetime forget the complete resignation of here it is. Here's probably the worst thing that could happen to me. And I have no way of getting out of it. So if I was to run away, I had no friends. If I ran away, I would be homeless. I couldn't run back to her because she would drive me back. I had no I had nowhere to go. I had to I had I had no choice. And so an overwhelming sense of despair and hopelessness and enormous fear about what is about to come. Leone was put in one of the villas, but it wasn't just girls who age in there. Women who were having nervous breakdowns, you'd see extreme behaviour in that. They'd be housed in the same villa as the girls. And every Friday, a V-dub van would roll up to Lake Ellis, with Dr Selwyn Leakes driving. He was there to lead group therapy sessions. They were just a crock of shit. You know, when you think back about that picture, it's just bizarre. One staff member has said that these sessions were often awkward. And if you think about it, you've got 20 traumatised children and adolescents in a room being asked to discuss their feelings. Sometimes the whole hour would pass with no one saying a thing. But Lex would be there watching the kids and taking notes. And Lex wasn't just there for the therapy sessions, as Leone soon found out. Somebody had got cheeky and uh, well actually no somebody did something that and I laughed at it because it was absurd and Dr Leakes he said to me you're going to get shock treatment that's it in case you missed it Leone was told you're going to get shock treatment and I absolutely freaked out he said you're going to get it tonight In my world at that time, there would have been nothing more terrifying than you could threaten me with. Nothing. If you've heard about Lake Ellis, you've probably heard some of this, about kids getting shock treatment there. But here's the thing. They weren't getting ECT. Not most of the time anyway. As we've said... ECT was and is considered a valid treatment for some mental illnesses. Lots of people are critical of it, but there's lots of people that are supportive as well, including patients who see it as a lifesaver. But proper ECT follows certain protocols. First of all, it's modified. Patients are given muscle relaxants and anaesthetic, so they're unconscious when the shock's applied. It's also relatively painless. 
but the kids at Lake Alice describe incredible pain, and they weren't usually given drugs beforehand. In other words, their shocks were unmodified. From what we've been told, Selwyn Lex also had a habit of riding the dial on his machine, dialing up the intensity of the shock during the treatment. This is also extremely unusual, but you don't need to take my word for it. Here's Professor John Weary again. No, that is not ECT. Yeah, I think you need to keep em- emphasising the point. They weren't getting ECT. If they were getting ECT, they should have had anaesthesia. And there's another issue with what's happening at Lake Alice. A lot of the time, shocks were given less for treatment and more as a punishment for bad behaviour. And that bad behaviour could be simply talking back, being caught smoking or masturbating, or getting bad grades at school. Sometimes it was given to kids for not eating their vegetables. Which is why, to this day, Rangi and Tyrone pretty much don't touch vegetables. By giving electric shocks to the children as punishment, Dr Lex was merging the use of ECT with another type of treatment called aversion therapy. In aversion therapy, unwanted behaviour is paired with an unpleasant experience. The patient comes to associate the two things together, like spraying a dog with water when it craps on your lawn. But the deterrent is supposed to happen at the same time as the behaviour you're trying to modify. Lex's treatments often happened at random or after a delay. Also, the deterrents used in aversion therapy were well below the level of pain, unlike the pain that was inflicted on the children at Lake Alice. But Dr Lex was using such heavy doses of electricity that the staff gave him different nicknames. His psychiatric nurse, Brian Stab again. Among, among certain circles, he was known as Karapiro Jack. Karapiro Jack. It's a reference to the Karapiro power station in the Waikato. You know, and the little stories going around about how he would he drain the dam up in the mountains because of the amount of ECT he was using. And it was sort of, you know, that kind of um, sparky leaks. Karapiro Jack. Sparky leaks. Someone told me once that when the kids were waiting in the day room, the TV would flicker as someone got shock treatment. I've also heard of nurses threatening kids with being hooked up to the national grid. The best people to explain what it was like to receive Dr Legg's special brand of treatment are those he practised it on. So that's what we're going to do. But just a heads up here, this next bit is pretty intense. So pause and listen later if you're not in the right space to hear it. You're also going to hear a few voices you don't know yet, but you'll get to know them in time. Remember, these are adult voices, but at the time, they were kids. We'll start with Rangi. Going into that day room and watching these kids curled up on the floor, absolutely terrified. Shitting, pissing, meowing like little kittens. Kids were taken up to the room. They were taken upstairs to just past the office, turn right. Dragged up the stairs. By the time I got up there, everything was all set in and ready. The machine and the, on, on the trolley and everything. The machine that was used was a steel 
grey box with a dial meter gauges or whatever they are. The red light. Yep. When I saw the trolley, I know it must be a treatment of some sort. The electrodes were like a headphones. They had bandages on the end before they put inserted the electrodes onto your body parts. They soaked it in a solution to conduct the electricity as it's going through your body. They would turn around and grab me and throw me on the bed and that would all pile on top of me and pin me down from the shoulder blades, yeah, my hips, I couldn't move. He stood over me and put the electrodes one by one across my head and he said to me, you won't get to here again, will you? And when he turned it on, that boy, the feeling of it. Your eyelid shut, the first bit of electricity that's going through. You got yellow line this way. You see people lines going through your eyes, six seconds. And when they hit together, that's when it goes. <laughs> it's just like a, a sledgehammer whacking your head. If you turn that up for volume, you can hear things louder. In our case, when he turns that up, there's more electricity running through your head. So the more he turns it up, the uh, more severe the shock is. The ringing in your ears at the same time. You're biting the mouth guard and you're in a sit-up position by then. I don't think anyone could ever really say how long they had it for, but I know I was riding that thunderbolt for a hell of a long time. Oh, oh one more minute, Rangi. Hang on. I'll get you up there. Up and down, up and down, up and down. And at any stage, if they wanted to knock you out, they just push that silver button. One last one. When he's done, it's like you've just run a thousand fucking miles. Your throat's dry, you, you're sweating severely, your jaw's aching. I got to the stage with that where... I ended up on the floor with these kids. I ended up in the fetal position. I ended up deprecating, urinating myself on the hope it wouldn't happen to me. And I clung to these kids. We clung to each other out of fear, out of terror. So I don't forget those kids. Dr Selwyn Leakes had absolute power over the children in the adolescent unit. But eventually some of the kids at Lake Ellis found ways to gain power back. We'll hear more about that in the next episode, but we'll finish this episode with our old mate Tyrone. We had the pleasure of making him cups of tea, and you know what went in that cup of tea, especially for me. I pissed in his cup all the time. (laughs) And he says, that's a lovely cup of tea. And then, of course, I was... uh, subsequently electrocuted <laughs> later in the afternoon. <laughs> but I done it on two, three occasions. <laughs> Have some of that paralyhide through my pissy ass. <laughs> Not long after this, Tyrone's anger boiled over during one of his treatments. He picked up the ECT machine and smashed it into Dr Lex's head. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, that's it. You know, that's not going to happen anymore, but I was wrong. The treatments didn't stop. And this is when it occurred to Tyrone that Lex and his staff seemed to enjoy what they were doing to him. 
Tyrone's reaction, his pain, was part of the payoff. What would happen if he denied them the satisfaction? What I did was make out that it wasn't having any effect at all, but it was, but I wasn't going to fucking let them know because I go, ah, is that all? (laughs) Oh, that was quick. You know, if you keep screaming and yelling, they'll keep doing it to you. But if you actually say, ah, is that it, and you don't do so much, then that desired effect that that they were doing then stops. And after that, they stop doing it altogether. The treatment that Dr Leakes was using was based on fear. When Tyrone defied him, Dr Leakes was impotent. In February 1974, Tyrone left Lake Ellis. But the adolescent unit would continue to operate for another three years. There was still experimental psychiatric treatment of children. There was still unorthodox use of ECT machines. And the use of peraldehyde as punishment. And there's more, and we'll hear that soon. Which raises some major questions. Who was in charge? What on earth did Leakes think he was up to? And how was he allowed to get away with it for so long? Yeah. Who was giving him that protection? Coming up in the next episode, a Nguyen boy gets the message out to New Zealand about what's really happening. Finally it comes... Ah, no, no. Here it comes. No, I do it on a happy face. And the children of Lake Ellis find some allies. Well, I thought they were normal children, just with problems. The Lake was researched and hosted by me, Aaron Smale. It was produced, edited and scripted by Kirsten Johnston and Melody Thomas at Popsock Media. Tyrone Marks helped support survivors during our interviews. Ben Lemmy wrote music for the series and recorded the narration. Mark Chesterman did sound design and the final mix. At Stuff, our script advisors were Eugene Bingham and Adam Dudding, and the commissioning editors were Carol Hirschfeld and Patrick Crutzen. This podcast was made with the support of New Zealand On Air.